Welcome to Niners Sports Talk. I'm your host, Sam Perry. I'm joined today by Niner Times staff writer, Blake Rose. Blake, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I know I told you guys last week that Coach Robert Woodard from the baseball team would be joining us. He was actually feeling a little under the weather this week, so that's going to get pushed back. Not sure when yet, but have that out. And I know we're going to talk about the baseball and softball schedules with him. I got an article coming out on the Niner Times site this week, so I'll go over that if you want to read that until we get that interview with him. Um, but overall today, we're going to talk about the end of Charlotte football season, um, how men's and women's basketball is doing. And what I'm really excited for is um, fall sports superlatives. So, Blake, ready to get into this? Yeah, so uh, we'll start with the Charlotte football team. Uh, Sam, what did you see from the 49ers as they traveled down to South Florida this past weekend? I saw a team that had a lot of heart. I know they were down 12 starters in that game. They had a backup offensive lineman playing defensive tackle in that game. And they opened up the game with a perfect offensive drive, which I don't know about you, but this season saying perfect and offense in the team just hasn't been a thing we've really heard much of. But um, Coach Biff Pogey said after the game that they kind of got away from their offensive game plan that really cost them. And then I think on their second offensive drive, this is what really turned the tide. It was fourth and one at their own 10-yard line. They had the offense out there. Player for USF jumps offside blatantly. No flag was thrown. But Trexler Ivy spiked the ball thinking he had a free play, so throws it 15 yards down the field. Of course, it doesn't get completed, and they don't get the play overturned with the penalty. Next play, USF scores a tie and just went downhill from there. But – um. Overall, I had a fun trip down to Tampa, but um, Blake, what have you seen? If you had to sum up the season as a whole, like what word would you use? Um, so I would probably use development because watching this team grow, even just throughout the whole season, I mean, it, it's the the way that Pogi has developed this team so far this season is completely different from how I saw them develop last. Um, last season and you can I mean if you look at the win column it's it, we're slowly improving there over last season um, and I mean if you, it, it, the vibe of the team just feels different I know you 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 opened up that um, talking about the USF game about saying how they had a lot of heart kind of determination they they, they were there to play um, and I think that's a lot of, of what I've seen um, uh, with this season in particular is that I think the team is developed well and ready to win games. I think this is a program that is ready to to start and continue winning. I think you bring up a good point saying development because now not only is this our first year under Coach Pogey, this is our first year in the American Conference. That's a big leap and a big ask from a new coach to take over the program there. And it's his first year as a head coach in college. So I think we saw a lot of development from him overall. And he actually touched on in the postgame press conference some of the lessons he learned. And I think that's why you don't do a coach one and done. You give them a chance to learn from their mistakes in that first year. But um, coming up, we actually had that audio from Coach Pogey from post game at South Florida. Sam, I think I've learned a number of things. The first one would be um, I, I wouldn't – the biggest mistake I think I've made is I wouldn't have brought as many kids in from one single high school like St. Francis because it really, it really makes the culture even harder to, to grasp. Um, I thought that would work because A, we needed players, B, it was late in January, had to get guys, and I knew these guys and I knew they'd come. Um, <clears throat> but it took us a while to get over the hump. 
and culturally with that, and 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 maybe not even still over completely. Although I think, I think from Tulsa on out, we 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 did a much better. The the other thing I would tell you is, um, I thought that being a head college coach, I would not be able to be able to coach the way I coached the teams uh, at St. Francis and Gilman because they were younger kids, and and now I'm coaching older kids, and that older kids wouldn't respond to that. And when I say that, I mean this, um, Sam. Um, I, I I coach those teams with an iron fist, um, very uh, regimented, a lot of discipline. And what I found out is that that's exactly what a college team uh, needs. Um, yes, I was at Michigan, but it was different. It's different when you're running the program and when you're second in charge. And, and so, um, you know, we have a whole – laundry list of things to add into our processes which will start on Monday actually uh, with the players um, and it will be completely different um, there will be a couple things um, if any player asks me about NIL or about um, uh, you know playing time or about you know <laughs> how does our locker room compare to somebody else's or the size of our stadium versus somebody else's, um, then I immediately do not want that kid, okay? If anybody is not interested in going to class, not taking a major that actually matters instead of something that just keeps you eligible, um, I'm not interested in that kid. I don't care what school you've come from. I'd rather have a kid who is happy to be here and I had to learn all this. You know, I had to learn all this. You don't, you don't know this unless you do it. And, you know, the portal's new. So, and we didn't really do the portal in Michigan, um, which was a luxury. They're, they're, but they're doing it now a lot more. But I, I would not go from big school down, you know, power five down. Those kids are very entitled. It didn't work out for a reason. And they're a big headache, quite frankly. Um, and they they act like they're doing the program a favor, and really we're doing them a favor. And I don't want any guys like that. So I'm interested in guys coming coming up that have been successful and want to come up and try it at a he- higher level, but have mastered w- w- playing at the level that they played at, and who feel grateful to be here instead of like they're doing us a favor. So no sense of entitlement. And um, that's the kind of kind of a brief characterization of of the kind of guys we want. I also learned that you can't have too many young coaches on each side of the ball. You got to have some old farts in there. And and as a you know, I, I'm classified as the old fart because there's only one of me, and I I have a pretty busy job, and I can't be in offense and defensive meetings at the same time. So we're going to be bringing in some. Uh, friends of mine who are older, more experienced coaches, and um, and one on offense and one on defense, at least one on offense, at least one on defense. And these are guys who have been around the block, um, you know. So we're, we're, and we need that. Our young coaches need that. Young coaches need mentoring. The young coaches are very smart, you know, they're very intellectual, they're very smart. They learn the game. Most of them have learned the game not from playing, but from um, uh, coming up through the football process of being like a, 
student assistant, then a graduate assistant, then an analyst, and, you know, and they're just computer wonks. And they're very smart as far as scheme goes, but, but they need a lot of seasoning as far as putting game plans together, how to call plays, when to call plays, when and how to play the players. Um, and, you know, um, losing their egos at the door too. So this is all a process. And, and as I said in my, I think my previous, my last uh, press conference uh, uh, on Tuesday or whenever it was, huge learning experience for me. I mean, just huge. I've learned more in the last year since I got here. I guess it hasn't been a year yet, but uh, 10 months or so. Then probably I've learned since I started investing. Uh, and which I didn't know anything about at that point. And you can also make a strong argument. I don't know anything about what I'm doing right now. But I've learned a lot. And, and here's the thing. We, won't, we will not make, I will not make those mistakes again. And um, we have to recruit hard. We have to have armadillo skin uh, as coaches. Uh, we're going to get, um, we're going to be right on the road recruiting right away, but we're going to take a day or two and go to my place in South Carolina and um, the coaches and we are going to have it out. And um, it, it will not be fun if you are a thin-skinned person. And then after that, we will map out the whole year going forward. We'll map out the next 12 months every day. Uh, what we're going to do, policy, procedures, scheme, hiring, every workout, every practice, every everything. And, uh, and then we'll get to work implementing it. And we've got a really good freshman, incoming freshman recruiting class. You know, very highly ranked in the league. The last I saw it was three. Um, and we are, in the next three weekends, we have 45 of the best junior college players in the country on our campus. And so as much as coaches get recognized, believe me, um, it is not about the co- – it, 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 the players win games, not coaches. Now, player, coaches can screw it up, and uh, we've seen some of that this year too. But, um, but we've got to get some players in the door. And, and I will say this to you because I, I really appreciate the people that support us, and I think – and I've tried since I've gotten here – to be two things, optimistic, because who in the hell wants to play for a guy that isn't optimistic? And secondly, tell the press and therefore the fans the truth because they read the press. We have got, here's what we aren't right now. We got there today with the guys that played today, the guys that got on the plane, knowing that 12 starters are out and guys are sick and this and that and the other thing. This this team display, dis, displayed today toughness, and toughness is not physical. It is not mental. It is emotional. It is when the avalanche is getting ready to bury you, and you stick two feet and ten toes in the ground and say, you might bury me, but it ain't going to be easy. And this group did that today, and I'm very, very proud of them. Now, you can go so far with that. The interesting thing about it is after this season, we have so many kids, really good players, that want to come to Charlotte. And that was Coach Poggi after the USF game, which ended Charlotte's season. 
So, uh, Sam, what do you think is the identity of this football team going forward from what we've heard and what we've seen from Pogey's um, tenure here? I think the identity moving forward for Coach Pogey and his, as he called it, bad company, I think their team's going to be playing with a lot more heart than we've seen in the past. I, You know, he said some off-the-wall stuff this year. It always goes viral, but one thing I think you can always say about him is in the feet, what he's saying isn't right. It's what he truly believes. And I think kids like to play for that. That's something you believe in and buy into. And once again, this is his first year with the team. I think the program is moving in the right direction. There's going to be hiccups along the way like there is in everything. But I think we saw flashes of what they want to be offensively and defensively. And once they get that mesh together and with some coaching changes he said he's going to be making moving forward, could be some really big news in the team and some good progression for next season. You know, with the offseason having officially started for Charlotte, Blake, what do you hope to see from the team as we move into the offseason and prep for next year? Yeah, so um, what what I hope to see from especially this offseason is uh, just more players coming in from the transfer portal and, and hoping to to build a connection with with Coach Pogey and and um, looking for players at, posi- at core positions like quarterback and, and wide receiver and developing those cores to where if one of those those guys potentially goes out with an injury or something like that, then we have depth at those uh, current positions and. With every season, with every offseason, you're going to have um, like position and player turnover. And uh, one of those recent turnovers has been running back Shadrick Bird. And Sam, you've been here through his entire time at Charlotte. What has he meant for the program um, at his time here? I think fans are always going to remember him as the guy who got the game-winning touchdown against Duke, our only win over a Power 5 school in our 11-season history now. And he's one of those guys you was always – are happy to see you succeed because he always comes up, comes to practice and comes to games with the biggest smile on his face. He got one of those million-dollar smiles, you know, and brightens your day, kind of like Magic Johnson had with the Lakers back in the day. And he's been a vital piece of the offense for the last three years. He's been a running threat and a receiving threat. And this season he set a, his career high in rushing yards with 92 rushing yards against Navy on this clip. I got to talk to him before he entered the portal, and I asked him the question I always ask every player is, what does it mean to you to be a Charlotte 49er? And we'll take a look back at what he said then. It means a lot, especially when you've been through a lot at a certain place. It kind of reminds me of high school. Like My high school I went to was a bottom-tier program at the time as well, but until like my junior year, really we started winning, it was, it was the same thing. Like I see the same similarities here that was going on before. Coach Biff got here that I was seeing at um, my high school back at home, Thompson, before we started winning. Just a lot of t- a team with a lot of potential that's just being untapped, that's not being just waiting for it to click. So that's why yeah, I just appreciate Charlotte for giving me a home, really, to play football. Coming out of the transfer portal is not easy for everybody, but it's been good. It's been good to me. Um, moving on to men's basketball, Blake, I know you've followed the team pretty well this year. Um, what did you see in that win over Georgia State? So I saw a lot of grit. I saw a lot of determination. And this is something that we've seen from the team basically from that very first game um, against Maine. Is that it, This team comes out every single game, and they come out at halftime too, wanting to win these these basketball games. And this team knows that they can win, and they, they 
can win games. Um, and and so what I saw from from this particular game against um, Georgia State is that that they came out, you know punch for punch against Georgia State, you know, keeping up with the team through the first couple of minutes. And they let that and, – and I've seen this from the team a couple of times this this season so far is that they kind of in the middle of the periods, in the middle of the halves, they kind of start waning down a little bit and let that lead, if they have a lead, um, slip out of their hands. Or if the other team has a lead, they let that lead grow and that tends to happen towards the middle of the first and in the middle of the second half and so that's exactly what happened in this game and they they ended that first half down by 11 but what's particularly important with this team and something that that they either need to continue or just eliminate this this problem at all is that they were able to kind of rally coming into the the second half and then especially in those last couple of minutes those last uh, four minutes of the second half of this game against Georgia State, being able to tie the score at 53-53 with four minutes, four and a half minutes left in the game, and then absolutely just dominate um, and and be able to gain that eight-point lead at the end of the game um, with multiple different um, players stepping up, Igor Milicic, Lakai Patterson being able to knock down some, Nick Graves being able to knock down some, some important game deciding shots towards the end of that game. Yeah, I think you mentioned it really well that they played basically hard till the end throughout the game. That's something that coach Aaron Fern says he preaches them every day. He he said he's might be a little too hard on them on it, but he wants them playing hard no matter what the score is till the final minute. We saw that the Liberty game when they lost, they still played really well to end that game. We saw that this past weekend with a big win 65-57 over Georgia State and hoping to see that moving forward cuz that's how you get a team to really grow together and make sure they're playing the best they can every minute of every game. Blake, talk about the like emergence of Lukai Patterson. He was hurt earlier in the year. That just came out this week that he's been dealing with some injuries. He goes down to Florida. He starts scoring again. What have you seen from him so far in the last few games? Yeah, so I think I think Lakai Patterson is is a fantastic player, and I think he fits in this scheme very well with Fern. Is that he he's not the flashiest guy. He's very fundamental driven. Um, you don't you're not going to see him dunk the ball every single game and, and do crazy windmill or, or just extra things that that don't need to be to be done. He's an extremely productive player. I think he's a, a floor general type player where he just runs the offense incredibly well he's great on defense being able to maneuver within man as well as zones we've seen I know Fern talked about having a 1-3-1 he was able to kind of stay at the top of that key in in that um zone defense and I mean he's just as good in his own defense as he is in in man and and um he's a great size for this offense as well he I think he just um flourishes in this particular in this particular style of game that Fern likes to play and and um, I'm really excited to see where he goes with the rest of the season I think he's got incredible potential and and I just think he's um, he's a great fit for this this program um, another player Igor Milicic Jr. he was going on a tear of double doubles that game against Georgia State he only gets four points but overall the team wins has a big success what does that mean about the depth of this team when one of their leading scorers on the year doesn't do too much in that game? They still find a way to win. Well, if I mean, if we're looking at the the, the simple box score here, I mean, Lakai Patterson had twenty three and Deshaun Jackson had had twelve points in, in this game. Is it, it, that's tough? There's only one basketball, and so as long as Militich can 
consistently play at this level. I mean, there is, like I said, there is only one basketball. If if other guys like Lakai and like Deshaun Jackson are, you know, handling the rock well and being able to effectively score, I think it's okay that Milicic kind of gives the offense up a little bit and 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 makes sure that he he continues his consistent play on defense as well. I know he's a, he's a rebounding machine, and and so if he can continue that, if a guy like Lakai or Jackson wants to step up and and or if one of those guys is just having a better game I think I think it's important for Militich to recognize that and and I think he did against this game against Georgia State is recognizing hey I might not be having the greatest game or somebody else is having a just is is feeling a little better tonight than I am and and I'm going to try to get them the rock any anytime I can um, when you look at the team this year they really succeeded on the defensive end of the ball they rank seventh in the nation in points given up with only averaging 58 points against them, and that's first in the American Athletic Conference. What have you seen at that end of the floor that's worked for them? Yeah, so defense, I'm, I, I alluded to it a little bit um, with, with one of Fern's um, like pressers after uh, press conferences after um, the Liberty game is, the, is that they were running the 1-3-1, one, one, and, and what I see from Fern is a lot of defensive um, – Differences is that he doesn't run the same thing every game, and in, in that uh, that for very first game against Maine, he was running like a man defense, and then switched it up to a to a two three zone defense, and so I think being able to keep the opposing offenses on their toes is a big big strength in today's game and 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 having players that can effectively run multiple different defensive strategies is incredible, and and if they can continue both the defensive plays. You know, when it comes to steals or forced turnovers or rebounds, all of it is is incredibly important. And and what they've been doing right now in the different defensive schemes is is incredible. And, and if they can keep it up, then we're going to continue to to have these large leads or continue to trail teams by only a couple of points or only by a couple of possessions. And so, if they can keep that going, then I think it, that that'll allow the the team to to grow defensively um, and then as well keep that that offensive pressure. Um, but I think they've been doing very well um, defensively so far this season. So, Sam, transitioning over here to women's basketball, what did you see from the uh, San Juan shootout that they uh, most recently had? I saw a team that has a lot of depth that got really tested, and I think it's going to pay dividends moving forward. One thing I thought was a little upsetting in the San Juan shootout was that first game against Southern Illinois. They had the lead early, and they kind of gave it up late. But overall, I think they had a good week in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which you know, spending the holidays away from family and uh, overseas is always tough. And I think it's something that's going to build the team and help them grow together, which culture is a big thing in um, head coach Kara Consuega's system. And that second game against West Virginia, they're a very good team that they played, which – yeah, they lost 84 to 56. There's a lot of good signs in that game. Team is playing really well together. And then they bounced back from those two losses. They got a big win over George Washington, 50 to 38. So overall, the team's playing well from that. Um, they have one more home game before hitting the road for three more in a row. So having that experience on the road overseas will help them moving forward because they're going to be away from Halton Arena again for a while. Well, their next home game after yesterday's game against Mercer is going to be in December 21st when they take on Davidson. 
Right, so Sam, looking at the defensive side of the ball, what are you seeing from the women's basketball team that you think are some strengths that they need to capitalize on going forward, especially on the defensive end? I think this season more than most, the team seems ready to play defense anyway early. Defense is a big part of their program. It has been ever since Coach Consuero took over, but this year more than most, they're ready early. They're, their opponents are only averaging 32.9% from the um, field which is 13th lowest in the nation. So they're doing really well on that end of the ball. They're playing different ways throughout the game. And actually, Coach Consuero mentioned this in their last postgame press conference of their ability. That's the biggest surprise so far is how ready they are on the defensive side of the ball. I think once the offense gets clicking, they got a lot more players that are playing this year than last year. In years past, he's played only like eight people consistently, but – this year, you're seeing like 10 players get between 15 and a little less than 30 minutes. So I think once they get all that clicking and figure out what works best, the offensive side of the ball will thrive as well as the defense. It should be really good this year moving into the new conference. I'm moving on to the Charlotte Fall Sports Superlatives. These were voted on by the Niner Times staff as well as other local media, sports media members. But um, we'll start with football. Um, Blake, who was the winner of the offensive MVP? Yeah, so there were two co-MVPs for offense for Charlotte football, both raking in 36% of votes, uh, respectively. And those two players are Jalen Jones and Jack Hestera. So quarterback Jalen Jones um, had a total rushing gain of 600 yards this season, and he single-handedly carried the win over ECU. And Jack Hestera had 349 uh, receiving yards with an average of 12.46 yards per carry. Hestera also had a 35-yard catch in the fourth quarter of the football game against Tulsa to put them within scoring distance um, for another Jack Hestera 18-yard receiving touchdown to give them a late lead with a minute left. So I know I spoke about the offensive MVPs. Sam, what were the defensive MVP, MVPs for the Charlotte football team? Nakai Hill-Green was the winner of the defensive MVP in the vote. And honorable mention, we're going to go with Demetrius Knight because he was just one vote behind him. But um, Nakai Hill-Green on the season, he seemed to just show up in the really big moments. You know, in that Tulsa game you just talked about, he had the big third down stop to give Charlotte possession to go down and score that touchdown you just talked about with Jack Estera. He's also a two-time American Athletic Conference player, Defensive Player of the Week. Um, Demetrius Knight leads the team in tackles with 96 on the year in 12 games played. He also leads the team in interceptions with three, and one of those was the pick six against Maryland early in the season. Overall, he's been there for every game of the year and really stood out well for the team, so that's why those two won the awards. As we look to the performance of the year, Blake what performance really stood out and won the vote here? Yeah, so the performance of the year that, that stood out to um, respondents to the poll was that was the Hassan, the Hassan Wilson 198-yard, um, three-touchdown game against Memphis, which they unfortunately lost, but um, absolute breakout game for uh, Wilson. And uh, coach head coach Biff Pogey, stated in the presser after the game that in December, when it comes time to reevaluate scholarships, that that game won him a, a scholarship. 
So, Sam, what games stood out um, amongst local sports media um, as the game of the year? Um, this was the closest vote because the the winner was the Memphis loss in overtime, which it's hard to say a loss is the favorite. But if you look at that game, Memphis is a top program, and they've pushed it to overtime. The offense really was hitting on all cylinders. You talked about Hassan Wilson's 198 rushing yards. But Colin Weber also had 117 receiving yards that game with 103 coming after the catch. So it was overall a really good performance from Charlotte. Now tied for second place, both with just one vote each away from first, was their big win over Tulsa. And then their first win in conference against ECU, which both were also somewhat good games, but they didn't have that offensive prowess that you hope to see from the team that we saw in that loss to Memphis. But overall, those are the football superlatives. Now we move on to men's soccer. Um, we have co-MVPs for men's soccer. Um, Blake, who won those? So the co-MVPs for men's soccer was Brigham Larson and Jonathan Nianjo. And so Brigham Larson has had a breakout, fantastic season, pro- propelling them to become the AAC tournament champs. Brigham Larson had five goals and five assists on the season, posting 15 points with 35 shots with a shooting percentage of 14 and a shot on goal percentage of 60. Um, And Jonathan Nianjo also had, um, he had four goals and he had four assists, posting 12 points on the season with only 29 shots taken, 13% shooting um, with 30% 30% shot on goal. And both of these players uh, were extremely efficient at their respective positions and were and were vital to propelling them into that uh, AAC tournament champion. Speaking of the AAC tournament championship, um, is that the game that won game of the year for them? Yes. So the game of the year for men's soccer was the AAC championship win over number two nationally ranked SMU, which was a big game for both the program as well as the university as a whole. According to voters, what performance really stood out the most on the season? So performance of the year was Leonard Schroeder's four saves in clean sheet versus high point in the NCAA first round of the playoffs. So as we move on to women's soccer superlatives, Sam, what are the MVPs from women's soccer this season? Um, according to voters, the two players that really stood out the most was goalkeeper Emma Wakeman and attacker Macy Bader. Um, Wakeman got her first year to really play a lot as a keeper. She was there in goal all season long, every minute of every game. And she had a real breakout year with nine clean sheets on the year. And she was very vital in some games because the offense was slow in some games. She helped them keep the team in there and was vital to them having a really good record and going into the conference tournament. But uh, then for Macy Bader, she was really good this season. She had the second most points for the team with five goals and six assists. She had some really standout performances for the team this year. Like every year it seems playoff Macy Bader is just on a different level. In that first matchup of the season against ECU, she had two goals with the first one coming within the first minute of the game. So that's why she also was a co-MVP of the team. So moving on to game of the year, what were the local media's um, opinions on what the game of the year was? Um, It was that ECU game I just mentioned. They came out in the playoffs 
and had a stunning match, winning 5 nothing over the Pirates. And that's their first year in the American, and they really made a statement win coming out there and with Emma Wakeman getting the clean sheet there and them scoring five goals. That was a big performance for the team with their second year under Coach Brandy Fontaine. So I really impressed the voters. They got a whopping 84% of the vote for that game. And then according to voters, what did we say was the performance of the year from women's soccer? Well, it seems like with most of these awards, Charlotte's players seem to play really good against Memphis, even in losses. Emma Wakeman took home the award in this one with 12 saves against Memphis in the second round of the conference tournament. She was really doing everything she could to will them to a win. It didn't happen, but that was a career-high game for her with 12 saves, which really bodes well for the future of the team as they look the next season. As we look at volleyball, um, Blake, who won the team MVP? So team MVP goes to Annika Wetterstrom, with an honorable mention going to a team captain, Sophie Whalen, who um, previously in the season posted 32 digs um, in four sets. But, um, but strong performances from both players um, who are incredibly gifted at both of their positions, helping push uh, Charlotte Volleyball to a new caliber of play. And so from voters, what did they decide was the game of the year for volleyball? Um, the voters voted for their 3-2 win over ECU, which they were down 2-1 in that match and came out and won the final two sets to take home the victory against the in-state rival. So a big win for the program. They had some struggles this year, so that was one of those building block wins. And then you kind of already touched on it earlier, performance of the year. Sophie wins 32 digs against Tulsa, their final game of the year. Early in the season, she had 20 digs against the team, and Coach um, Karen Weatherington was really excited about that, having averaging five digs per set. With this one, she has 32. She gets eight digs a set. That's just unheard of and really impressive from the senior libero. And the coming in second place with just one vote behind was Annika Wetterstrom's 50 assists and 11 dig game against UAB. Really big performances from them. And they left a lot of big shoes for the team to fill as a lot of them are graduating this season. But that's all we have for fall superlatives. So we now move on to professional sports. Um, So we'll start with the team playing at the Spectrum Center, the Charlotte Hornets. Um, Blake, I know you've wrote a lot of articles on them for the Niner Times this year. Um, What did you see from them? I know the in-season tournament group play games are over. What did you see from them in those games? Yeah, so currently the Charlotte Hornets have been eliminated from any contention in the inaugural season of the NBA's in-season tournament. And so while disappointing that may be, they did have a couple of highlights, and I've noted a couple of those highlights in my upcoming article on NinerTimes.com covering a takeaways and recap of basically all four games of the group stage that the Hornets played in Um the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, all of it will be in that article. But to to kind of summar- summarize it a little bit is that for, from the first two games that they played, they were one and one and LaMelo Ball was healthy and the team was, it was firing on all cylinders. Three-point shooting was looking okay. Uh, driving to the basket was good. Defense was great. LaMelo was scoring 30. Um, and these back, two guy- these back two games took a, a turn for the worse. Um, and that kind of first stems from LaMelo getting hurt, and we'll we'll cover that later, but um, it also was the lack of three-point shooting uh, and then the lack of, of defensive 
effort and defensive just overall hustle is that we they the Hornets kind of lacked a little bit in um, letting big leads kind of slip away in both games against the Milwaukee Bucks on November 17th and the New York Knicks on November 28th. Um, both of those leads got kind of out of hand due to, to uh, defensive struggles. Um, so you look at the Hornets this year, they're 5-11 and 11 on the year. You know, they, they've had injuries all year, but they look to be getting to full strength and then Miles Bridges no longer being suspended. They had that big overtime win against the Celtics. Things seem to be moving in the right direction. But it's almost like a theme for them. Whenever they stuff starts going right, Lamelo Ball gets hurt. What, what does that tell you about the team, and who do you hope to step up in his place? So first off, Lamelo Ball hurt the same ankle, that right ankle that he had surgery on last. He fractured that right ankle last season, um, and that's why he was out. I mean, he only played thirty six games last season, um, and it was due to that right ankle fracture. And he has screws and hardware um, put in. To, to help minimize further injury to that ankle. And, and he's went and uh, sprained it again. Um, and Sham Saranya stated that it is going to take significant time um, to heal. We're looking at probably four weeks to a couple to two months um, before it, he can he can take the court again. And I mean, that's that's when you're looking at four weeks to two months, that's a quarter of the season. Um, and so he's going to be missing significant significant time and significant play with the team, um, and and like you alluded to, Sam, with the with the how this is a continuing theme for the Charlotte Hornets is that they tried to and Lamelo has tried to in practice never in a game but has tried to in practice wear ankle braces with the likes of Trey Young and Steph Curry that both of them had ankle and severe ankle injuries in the beginning of their careers and have turned it around by wearing hard plastic ankle braces. Um, and Melo has tried, but he said they hurt too much. And with these specific ankle braces, you need to give them time to mold to your foot almost. The plastic in the, in, the, in the technology that they use in these braces, they do mold to your foot, but it's not instant. It's not going to be a two, three-hour ordeal and they're going to feel like you wear them every game. It's going to take a couple of practices. It's going to take a couple of games, but once they are molded, once they are adapted, they never change and and... and I think it's it's going to to come down to whether LaMelo wants to continue to play or not. Because the, the bottom line is if he doesn't use these ankle braces or something other than just medical tape, he may never play another NBA game again. Um, and, and, and so going forward, it's really going to determine whether or not Melo is going to take that extra step in pushing through and using ankle braces or not. Um, and, and so to answer your question about who am I looking to to step up on the team, with Miles Bridges coming back, it's going to be imperative that he gets back to his old Sky Miles self. Um, and and I'm, I, that's, that's easier said than done for a guy who hasn't played organized NBA level basketball in almost a year and a half. Um, and so that is a big ask from the former star forward, but um, I think he has what it takes. Currently, he's only played very few games. I think he's only played these last stretch against Washington, Orlando, New York, but in these games, he showed flashes of his of his former self and um, posting uh, 18 
an average of 18 points per game throughout this uh, throughout his couple of games that he's he's returned through this season. And so Miles Bridges stepping up is going to be big, um, as well as Terry Rozier coming off of that um, uh, the groin strain injury. That's going to be big for him uh, in facilitating the offense. Um, not to interrupt this, but we just, some big news just came out for Charlotte football. Um, freshman running back Darrell Robinson has entered the transfer portal. Um, Blake, what's your instant reaction to that? Because I know I'm a little gut wrenched, especially with Shadrick Bird leaving, as we had talked about earlier. How does the team recover from that big loss? Um, I think it's I think it's a little distasteful seeing that already one running back his has left. Um, or is is entering the transfer portal? I mean, when you enter the transfer transfer portal, it's not a guarantee that you're leaving. You could very well get no offers or offers of schools that you're you're not interested in. Um, but I think I think with you, my initial reaction is slightly gut wrenching in the sense of he moved up a spot in the depth chart. Why would you give that up to move to a t- a team where you might fall farther down in the depth chart is my initial reaction. And I think building off of that, he's got a good relationship with Coach Poji. You know, it's a lot of guys transfer and go to a place. Some of these schools are just looking to have guys so other teams don't have them. They don't even play you. I think it's a big risk, especially with his injury this year. It's a big ask trying to transfer, but that I had to cut you off just to talk about it because that's some big news in Charlotte football. Um, you look at the Hornets, Brandon Miller, the rookie, he's been one of the positives for the team. What have you seen from him? Do you think he was the right choice? You know, a lot of fans are arguing before the season during the draft whether they should take Scoot Henderson or him. What's your opinions on that? So Brandon Miller is averaging 14.4 uh, um, points per game on four rebounds and shooting 46% from the field. Those are fine stats from a rookie in, in the NBA. Um, and in terms of the outcry of Hornets fans specifically choosing Scoot over him or other prospects, I'm sure there were there were others who, who um, advocated for, for other prospects. I think Brandon Miller was the right choice. Um, my thought always was he fit best with this organization. He fit, he fit the team best. I'm, I, I was big um, in that we didn't need another guard. Um, looking now with LaMelo getting hurt, maybe maybe we did, but at the time of drafting Brandon Miller, we did not need a guard because LaMelo was coming back healthier than ever. Uh, we had Miles Bridges coming back and – it just seemed like depth at that forward position because we saw last season the absence and the absolute black hole that Miles Bridges created in the forward position that PJ, JT Thor, Kai Jones were having to step up and they just quite they just weren't Miles Bridges caliber. PJ being the closest to Miles Bridges caliber um, caliber forward. Um, but I think Brandon Miller has the potential to be, if not better than Miles Bridges um, in terms of pure basketball potential. And I think having the depth at that position when Miles is hurt, when LaMelo is hurt, when, you know, you just need a guy to get to, to, to throw out there for 20 minutes and, and, and get you points um, if maybe Miles is having an off night or if PJ is having an off night. Um, 
So I think he was the best fit at the time for the organization and for the team. Um, and so that's why he was my personal uh, pick for that that draft for last year's draft. Um, but I, I, I but I can see why why some um, fans, NBA fans, and, and why some Hornets fans believed that he might not have been the best prospect or the best uh, decision. Head coach Steve Clifford has been notorious in years past not trusting rookies. He seems to give a lot of trust to Brandon Miller, which playing him a lot in big moments. What does that say about Brandon Miller's development and readiness for the NBA if Steve Clifford, who's been around a while, is actually trusting this rookie to play a lot? So I know the I know this particular draft class was was hindered by um uh or shadowed, I should say. It was shadowed by generational talent, Victor Wembenyama. Um, but if Wembenyama was taken out of the equation, Brandon Miller would have gone at the one. I mean, he was unanimously. I mean, a lot of people said Scoot was the guy, um, and playing at, and Scoot was very good at the level that he was playing at, but Brandon Miller was that type of talent that he kind of slid under some people's radars. If you're not a basketball fan, if you're not a basketball guy, you don't recognize Miller. You're, you don't see him as being the guy. Um, but I think I think Cliff is a basketball guy. I think Cliff is a very very good basketball mind. Um, hearing him in press conferences, he just he just he loves Steve Clifford. Loves the game. He understands the game. It's why he's a head coach. It's why he cares so much about the game. Um, and he's he's a big fundamental guy. Um, and I think that's what that's what Brandon Miller is. He's he's had a couple of flashy plays and a couple of dunks and, and crazy putbacks, but. At the end of the day, Brandon Miller is a mid-range guy. He and, and Brandon Miller is very good from beyond the arc as well. But but I've seen watching Miller play, he takes mid-range shots, which is something you don't find in the NBA today. Statisticians tell you, NBA statistics guys tell you to just take a step back and get the three. But that's not always the most efficient shot on the court. And so I think Clifford realizes that Miller knows when when a good shot is is available, and and Miller's not afraid to take it. And I think that's something that Clifford respects. Um, and so I'm really glad to see that finally a rookie has changed um, Steve Clifford's mind. And and I just wish he would maybe play some of the other rookies like Nick Smith and and some of the other guys who maybe don't get a lot of uh, a play time. Um, now that Miller has opened opened uh, Clifford's eyes a little bit, uh, we'll just see how they go for the rest of the season. See how Lamelo uh, progresses and see how he heels and we'll go from there picking up off of that um potential draft mistakes that fans were arguing about going into the draft carolina panthers their fans they almost did the opposite of what the hornets did the hornets all the national media was telling them to take scoot henderson everyone was pushing that agenda they went with who they thought was the best fit you look at the panthers all the national media is pushing bryce young on them instead of cj stroud Right now, it looks like they followed the national media, and it's not working out for them. What do you, what's your thoughts on that, and is it too soon to judge that? So I think it is too soon to judge, um, just right off the bat. I mean, um, it, it, there's no there's no debate that the issue um, in Charlotte this season with the Panthers has been less than ideal for for Panthers fans and for NFL fans because regardless of whether you're a Panthers fan or not, you want to see a guy of Bryce Young's stature and his poise, you want to see a guy like that succeed. So regardless of whether you're a Panthers fan or not, 
you still would like to see a guy like that succeed. And, and it's disappointing to football fans that he maybe has not lived up to expectations. Now, the opposite side of that coin is C.J. Stroud, is that C.J. Stroud has far exceeded expectations. And there's no doubt that he was the better choice. But, you know, six months ago, eight months ago, nobody knew that. You know, we, we didn't know that C.J. Stroud was going to be, you know, thrust into this spotlight of, you know, having a phenomenal, almost MVP caliber caliber season so far. Um, and from a rookie, nonetheless, it, it, it's just incredible what he's doing over there um, with the Texans. But um, coming back to, to Bryce Young is that um, the, the biggest – the biggest problem for for Bryce Young is his his general size is that he is an undersized uh, quarterback and the narrative around Charlotte was pushing him pushing them to get him to get Bryce Young and it's and it, and, and Bryce Young shined under under the lights at, at Alabama and, and with arguably one of the best college coaches of all time in Nick Saban is that in that it's easy to be good when you've got an organization and when you've got a, a core group of guys around you like you do at Alabama and and, and CJ Stroud had that exact same thing at Ohio State is that is that he that they, he had a core around him that could that was good at football and I think the difference between that is that Bryce Young went into a franchise that has not been generally regarded as some of the best in football and and I think the Texans are a little bit more suited to um, developing a, a, a better quarterback than the Panthers are um, and, and also on top of that the Panthers kind of gave away their future to get Bryce Young so it's it's kind of difficult when you you put all of your future into one guy and then you start having issues on the offensive line or you have you start having to have receiver issues when you can't build that up it, you you tend to go down a slippery slope. You tend you tend to kind of start falling down the the mountain, falling down the hill a little bit because um, you've traded away all of the the help that you otherwise would have been able to draft. Um, other big news for Carolina Panthers is they fired Frank Reich on Monday. What does that tell you about the team? And we talked about Bryce Young. How's that gonna? affect his development moving forward you know he's still getting acclimated to the nfl now next season he's going to learn a new playbook what does that tell you as the state of the panthers so i thought it was sort of like with the with the um decision to enter the transfer portal um it's a little distasteful um firing frank reich so close to the end of the season i mean realistically we have seven games left or uh, uh six games left and so for the Panthers, I, th- I think it, it chemistry-wise is shot. There's zero t- team chemistry. There's zero locker room chemistry. This season is a bust in terms of trying to develop a winning system, a winning rhythm. I think that's out the door. And and in terms of Bryce Young and his development, we kind of were talking about it earlier that it, it it's kind of a wasted year in terms of his development. There are pros that he can pull from this season in that, you know, now he knows how the NFL works and he now knows kind of kind of how he reacts to playing at that level, at that caliber, um, and playing against guys reading defenses that are of the likes of of NFL caliber defenses and, and reading them and, and maybe he's getting a, a a better awareness of how much time he has in the pocket. Those are all takeaways from this season that are pros for Bryce Young, um, but the cons severely outweigh the pros here in that there is no chemistry. 
like you said earlier, he's going to have to completely learn a whole new set of plays, a whole new playbook, a whole new de- a whole new offensive scheme under whoever they decide to hire uh, this offseason or or if they decide to, to keep whatever interim um, head coach or offensive coordinator that they're promoting. Yeah, and they fired Frank Reich, the new interim head coach, fired two other coaches. It almost – those were coaches who had been outspoken before the draft about how much they like C.J. Stroud. It's almost like they got rid of the people who weren't believing in Young. Do you think that's more of a positive thing for him, or is it is the detrimental effects of having to relearn all this stuff outweigh the positives of having people that didn't believe in him coming into the team? So in terms of if he's having to – relearn everything, I think then you want to surround yourself with people who believe that you were the right decision. Um, and so if we look purely, if we look purely at you're firing the people who didn't believe in him, which is probably a strength for him. And now you don't want to surround yourself with yes men, but you do want to have people who believe that you are the guy, that you are the one who can step up and lead your team to a potential playoff or a potential Super Bowl. You want those people around you. But like I said, you don't just want yes men. You want people who push you, but don't push you down. And so I think I think surrounding him with people who push him, but don't push him down is going to be critical when deciding how are we going to move on from the interim coach or how are we going to continue with the interim coach. Those are some just some questions that front office is going to need to address before the end of the season or in the offseason, but definitely before the start of next season. Um, owner David Tepper. This is his next year will be his fifth year of ownership. He's going to have his seventh coach when he hires his new coach. And if you look at his ownership with Charlotte FC, they're going to be owning their third season with their third head coach. Is he the problem? I think I think Tepper is part of the problem. Now I, I don't like a hundred percent putting the blame on Tepper, but I, I think that I think that at the end of the day. You're not going to build a winning culture around switching your switching your coach every single year. I mean, let's look at Belichick and and Brady. I'm sure that Brady would have won at least one championship if he didn't have Belichick. But there's a reason they didn't fire Belichick after Brady choked in the Super Bowl. Is because Belichick is a great coach and can elevate all of the players, not just. Brady or, or the other quarterback. Um, Tepper has yet to find that. Um, and then he's also not given these guys enough credit. I think the Matt Rule firing was the correct decision. I think this um, Frank Reich firing was the correct decision. But at the end of the day, he's the one bringing these guys into the franchise at the first place. We need to go out and you – now, you're not going to go out and find a Belichick, but you're, you can find someone better than Rule. Or you can find someone better than Reich and someone who, who, who elevates the team better than those two. And then also, don't give them a year. Don't get right. Frank Reich had half a season, barely half a season. You didn't even give him enough time to, to prove himself. And I understand that this is the worst season in – Panthers history so far if we were to win if if the Panthers were to never win another game for the rest of the season it would be the worst in franchise history but at the end of the day the rest of their schedule isn't isn't going to be a bunch of losses I'm sure that the Panthers will be able to to scrape a win against one of their remaining um, opponents so so firing him this this late in the season is a little distasteful to me Um, and and I think that it was not the right decision on Tepper and I don't think that Tepper is um, making the correct decisions at head coach. Yeah, when it comes to him firing him that quickly, it's the quickest in decades a coach has been fired. 
and you look at a guy like Brian Burns, who still hasn't worked at his contract extension with the team, does that almost turn players away and coaches away from wanting to be work for, play for Tepper? Because, you know, it's if he doesn't trust you, like Reich didn't even get a full season, that's not good. You need to let the guys try and do their job with what you've given them. Think that will turn away players potentially? Yeah, it's it, it's kind of that kind of goes back to what I was saying about building a winning culture. Is that you're not you're not going to build a winning culture if you're turning over coaches every season, and and even in this season, if you're turning over coaches in a half a season, you're not going to build that winning culture. Nobody's going to want to come play. Um, and, and so I know if I were a player, and and I think a lot of a lot of um, actual players now see the turmoil going on in Carolina and see what's going on with the Panthers and are like, I want, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, and, and I know if, I mean, if I were a coach and I was trying to, I mean, coaches are, are humans. They're, they have families and, and coaching is their job. And if, if, if I were a coach looking for a job and I was battling between going to a high caliber college, if I was a good enough coach and was, and was, trying to decide whether I wanted to go to a high-caliber college program or if I wanted to go to a low-caliber NFL program and I look and see my options are the Panthers, I'm not going to the Panthers because I could have better job security at a a higher-caliber college program than I am going to have in the NFL um, with a team like the Panthers because there's just no security there. There's no security that I'm going to wake up and not get a text from Tepper saying you're out. Yeah, when you look at that, it kind of reminds you this season with Charlotte football with Coach Biff. We talked about it earlier. It's his first year in the program. you got to let him build it and see how it goes. Obviously, the recent news with Darrell Robinson's disheartening, but program's still moving in the right direction. Darrell Robinson was out most of the year, and they still showed good signs of life moving forward. Program should be good, but let's look across the NFL this weekend. What matchup really stands out to you as the – premier game to watch this weekend so for me the premier game to watch is going to be the 49ers versus the eagles that is probably the the most action-packed game to watch the eagles are um you know headed for their second consecutive super bowl um here they they are looking just like their their normal selves hurts is playing out of his mind smith is playing very well brown is playing incredible you have the likes of jason kelsey snapping the ball their, their team is very strong and then on the other side of that ball you have a super bowl caliber team in the 49ers and, and you have a, a guy who can sling the rock like brock purdy um and you, you got guys who have sticky hands like debo and Ayuk. you have kittle to to when those two are double teamed when 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 uh debo and, and Ayuk are, are double teamed and, and and you've got a, a strong defense who can keep, uh, who can possibly keep that Philadelphia offense, um, you know, hold them back by a couple of possessions. So I think that's going to be a fantastic game. I will be watching, um, and I, I just think that's probably going to be our matchup of the week. Um, although I know Sam, you have um, a matchup that um, is also contending for a, a, a little sleeper matchup here that that could potentially be one. Why don't you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that? I let Blake take the easier answer since he's the guest, but uh, I think the Cleveland Browns and Los Angeles Rams game has a potential to be a really good game. That Cleveland Browns defense, they're deadly. And Los Angeles, they just added Kyrene Williams back on offense. He had an outstanding game. It was ridiculous. So that's a high-powered offense with a top-tier caliber quarterback taking on a top defense. I think that matchup makes for a great thing, you know, Cooper Cup and Puka Nakua, they had off games last week. See how they respond. But the quarterback for the Browns is going to be questionable because Sean Watson's out for the year. 
DTR is questionable. But if DTR is playing, you know, he went to UCLA. That's a hometown matchup. Could make for a really good game. I don't think it will be as good as the 49ers-Eagles game. But I think he has contention there. But that's all we got for you guys today. Um, thanks again, Blake, for coming out. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a, it was a blast. Next week, Charlotte men's basketball plays Duke. And Mason Curtis, the staff writer for the Niner Times, is going to join me as a co-host. We might have a guest. I'm still getting some in the works. But um, thanks again for listening.